0: Hello, everybody. Thank you so much for joining me for the Mindfulness Movement and Exercise Podcast. I'm Jen. We are going to be taking this a step further. So last time we looked at mindfulness and the history of mindfulness, we looked at it all the way back to when it was starting to become a popularized term, which was a very long time ago, if you remember, it was something like 4000 B.C., And it was happening in the East, but then it was also happening in the West. You had some of the Stoics and the Greeks talking about the very similar concepts that they were talking about in India and in China. So we're going, as I said, we're gonna take this a step further and look at mindful movement and sort of the history behind that. But before we do, go ahead and come into a comfortable seated position, if you're not already. And I want you to focus on your breath. Just noticing the inhale and the exhale. And as you notice the inhale and the exhale, see if you can notice the transition between the inhale and between the exhale. Also notice the transition between the exhale and between the inhale. And then go ahead and let that go. How does this relate to movement? Well, if you recall, way back when, I think it was episode two, I defined movement as an act of changing physical location or position. When I talked about mindfulness, I discussed that one of the things that mindfulness does is it creates space. So, when you can find the space between the transition, Of location. It can help give you more awareness of what you're doing and a little more control. The space can be really, really useful and it doesn't necessarily mean that you are moving slowly. I think this has been very misconstrued. This idea that the only way we can practice an essence of mindful movement is that we have to be moving slowly or we have to be moving in a in a way that looks a certain way. I'll dive into that more in later episodes. But let's dig into what we are talking about today. So remember that exercise is an activity requiring physical effort carried out to sustain or improve health and fitness. The second definition of exercise is a process or activity carried out for a specific purpose, especially one concerned with a Specified area or skill. I find the second definition of exercise more interesting, but that's just me. And when you start to look at some of the things that come along with the second definition of exercise, that you're doing this for a specific purpose, it implies that there is an intention behind what you are doing. And when there's an intention behind something you are doing, generally, there is a little more focus regarding that activity, which is very different than just simply performing something because it requires physical effort. Exercise is movement. So anytime you exercise, you're performing movement. Not all movement is exercise. If I go to reach for a glass, I am moving. It's not exercise. But then lines get really blurry. When I'm practicing a specific skill on the pole, for instance, am I exercising? There might be physical effort involved. Am I noticing the physical effort? Maybe not, because I'm focused on what I'm doing, and that's more that information, that Focus is quieting out everything else, which remember when we talked about noise, noise is the absence of unwanted distraction. Just some food for thought. How does mindfulness fit into all of this? Well, remember, it's the quality or state of being conscious or aware. It's focused attention. It's open monitoring. Focused, focused attention is simply that you're paying attention to what you're doing. Open monitoring is the ability to observe. When I asked you to observe your breath, that is what, or notice your breath, that is what you were doing. You were simply observing it. You were not trying to consciously control it or change it. This distinction is going to become helpful as we go through some of. Uh, the history of mindful movement. So mind-body exercises have been around for centuries, and I'm not talking about some of the big ones today. I am not talking about yoga. I am not talking about Pilates. I'm not talking about Feldenkrais. One of the things that's considered kind of distinguishing features of a mind-body exercise is that it fits into this category of natural movement That involves harmonizing exercises and stretches. So, just even this term, what does it mean to move naturally? I am using quotes here, air quotes here. The word natural means existing or caused by nature. So, in essence, isn't everything, every movement kind of natural? If it exists, and you're able to do it isn't that a isn't that a natural thing maybe maybe not you can teach yourself how to contort or move however you want it's a our brain and our body connection it's so impressive that we have the ability to train ourselves to do anything And sometimes this overrides, I think it could be argued, some of the more ways we might move naturally. At one point in time, I went to a modality that was very big on correcting breathing mechanics. And one of the things I was, and again, I'm using air quotes, supposed to do was to change my breathing pattern. I was, I was somebody who definitely breathed more into my chest. And I was supposed to change my breathing pattern by breathing into my belly. So I did this, even though it felt a little bit awkward and, but I trained myself to do it. Fast forward a year and a half, I'm at a different workshop or another modality. All of these are considered, you know, kind of more rehabilitation techniques or techniques that are supposed to prevent injuries. So I'm at a different modality and they're looking at me and they tell me, they say, no, you're a belly breather. You need to become more of a of someone who breathes into your middle back. So yet again, I changed my breathing pattern because I am that person who will focus on something and change it if I'm told I am supposed to. Turns out there were. For lack of a better word, there were some some things that were kind of missing with both of these modalities that I was learning. So yes, you can absolutely override what is natural for you. Now, is this to say that my breathing didn't need to change? I don't know if it did or not. Maybe if I changed some of the ways I was moving, perhaps that would have changed my breathing pattern naturally. Because that's the other thing you start to see is when you are focused on modalities that are very strict and you are supposed to put your body in this specific way. And you're supposed to hold this position or you're supposed to do a certain number of reps holding the specific position. Then again, you're teaching yourself something. And is that something that you want to be teaching? Back to mind-body exercises. One of the that shows up a lot in many of the mind-body modalities is they derive some of many of the movements from calisthenics. Calisthenics is a really interesting word. It originated in Greece a long time ago, many, 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 many years ago, centuries, centuries ago. The term comes from the Greek word kilos, which means beautiful, and stenos, which means strength. So calisthenics are beautiful strength. This is an aesthetic point of view. Now, if you remember way back to that podcast where I talked about the origins of exercise, I talked about how in Greece they had this, there was there was definitely the aesthetics attitude, but then over in Sparta, there was the warrior attitude. So the Spartans were using calisthenics to get strong and to go to war. In Athens, they were using us calisthenics to create this beautiful strength. In Sparta, they were also using something that would later resemble, later morph into the dumbbell at the same time. And that was to build even more strength so they could be successful when they went to war. It was also used to train warriors for battle in ancient China and India. So calisthenics were a tool that crossed two of those three things that I talked about in that second in that very I guess it was like the first episode where we talked about the history of exercise and remember that exercise is used primarily for three different things it's used for aesthetics it's used to train warriors or it's used for physical well-being historically Fast forward to the 1800s, we had pierling who's the father of Swedish gymnastics, and he developed an apparatus-free modality, which was meant to improve functional movement and address disease prevention and healing. So now we're into this physical well-being aspect. From his 1853 book, Gymnastics-Free Exercises, he wrote, it cannot be denied that the art of preventing disease is far preferable to that of curing it. Disease prevention. Again, this so when we start looking at the mindful movement techniques, you're gonna to start to see some different themes come up, and disease prevention is one of them. In Germany, around the same time, the moder- the father of the modern day gymnastics movement, with equipment was Friedrich Ludwig Jan. And he advocated strengthening the mind and the body through gymnastics. So he was using these different apparatuses, including the uneven bars and the pommel horse to create overall strength through both mind and body. It's kind of the first mention of this. They're attributed, Ling and Yan, are attributed to what became the physical culture movement. And for those of you watching, I apologize that my dogs just kind of butted themselves into into my space. (laughs) So I have removed myself. All right. So what potential mechanisms are actually at play for gymnastics to lead to a stronger mind and a stronger body? I want to talk about this just for a moment, because, again, I think that this is sometimes lost in what we often think of mindful movement. When you are performing an activity that has an element of potential danger to it, it takes your focus You cannot be thinking about something else. So, again, we have this focused attention aspect. If the activity is too challenging for you, your arousal level is going to go up so much that your chances of success at completing the activity are going to go down. I've mentioned this before, and I'm going to get into this later, not today, but on a different podcast about this idea of optimal arousal. An optimal arousal can be a useful thing to be able to find for people who are prone to more of a monkey mind. I fit into this category. This is one of the reasons I really like activities that require me to be flinging my body through space upside down. I like to do handstands. I like to do aerial silks. I like to do pull. They're interesting to me. Before that, I was doing a lot of move nat, which is like natural, which is, again, air quotes, natural movement. But I was required a lot of like swinging from bars and stuff. But again, it took my attention. It requires my attention so that I can't think about anything else. Is this a mindful movement? The art of focus is what these types of modalities start to to improve. And that's through this activation of the central executive network. It quiets down the default mode network. And again, it helps you start to find your optimal arousal. It lets you be very in tune with that. Because if someone offers a suggestion to you, like, please do this thing while you are up in the air, if you feel like your arousal level is going to go too high, you learn to say no. That's not a good choice for me right now. It's got a couple of other examples. My nephew came over recently. He's five. And he walked into the house and he immediately spotted my pole. And he asked me, he said, Aunt Jenny, what is that? And I said, well, that's a pole. And he said, what do you do with it? I said, you climb it. So without any further instruction, he began climbing up and down the pole. At first, he didn't make it to the top. He was testing the waters. He was testing his ability to get up, to get down, to get up, to get down. By the end of the half an hour that he was there, he was all the way to the top, all the way to the, all the way down. He wanted to come over the next day and asked me, he said, can we climb the pole again? I said, sure. So we go into the room. He says to me, he says, will you please climb it first? So I climb it first. I go to the top. I come back down. He immediately gets on the pole, goes up and goes down. We did that a few times. His arousal level, once he understood, once he felt secure on the pole, his arousal level was low enough that he could go all the way to the top. I have 10 foot ceilings and all the way back down. So What happens if arousal is too high? And if you think about Simone Biles during the most recent summer Olympics, she was performing very, very, very challenging routines. And she pulled out. And she was honest about it. You know, her anxiety was high. And this is a great example of what happens when arousal is too high. She was being very smart. Saying, you know, because if you if your arousal and your anxiety about something that is about to happen is very elevated, your nervous system is going to flip into that more. A lot of sympathetic nervous system without as much parasympathetic nervous system to kind of mitigate it. And that fight or fright response is very real. And it's during the fight or flight response when you make mistakes. So just some things to think about. What happens when arousal is too low, then you get bored and you're lethargic and that's never good either. Okay, let's go back to the history of mind-body exercise. So physical culture, which is what this kind of combining of Ling and Yan's work was morphing into was popular, kind of in the world until about the late 1800s when the emphasis shifted back to training warriors again, training military personnel. When that happened, gymnasiums started cropping up, and there were less there was less space for this physical culture kind of movement to take place. Gymnastics also became a more formalized training modality, and it shifted to something underneath the International Gymnastics Federation, where athletes and competitors began training. So that left this segment, and that was these mind-body enthusiasts, to find another home for themselves, and they did. During this time, and this was like the late 1800s, early 1900s, there were six modern mind-body schools that opened. I'm going to talk about just a few of them. There was an English-born physician named Edwin Checkley. He published a book called A Natural Method of Physical Training. He believed exercise should be non-competitive, it shouldn't require equipment, and he didn't encourage mental or physical exhaustion. He believed gym training and bodybuilding was unnatural, describing, and he described animals in nature as sustaining a lifetime of health, fitness, and beauty by performing effortless movement on a regular basis. This is important because you start to see this pitting of modalities sort of against each other. This idea that in order for you to achieve this efficient fitness and beauty, which health, fitness, and beauty, that you shouldn't be doing any sort of external weights or loads. It's worth noting That, again, there's this emphasis on beauty, health. So it's still, even though this is considered, he's one of, he's considered one of the mind-body pioneers, I would argue that his motives were largely driven by many of the same things that exercise were driven by. This doesn't mean that it wasn't a mind-body technique, but then again, can't you also argue that perhaps some of the exercise modalities that were being taught were also mind-body techniques? In Denmark, around the same time, there was a man named Jorgen Peter Mueller, and he published the book My System, which discussed how to maintain fitness and fortify health and stamina throughout your lifetime. He believed that using his methodology, you would increase physical and mental efficiency with just 15 minutes of daily exercises. He said, if people only knew how much more, how much better and how much longer they can enjoy life, instead of being controlled by a weakly body, they have a strong and healthy one at their command. He was interesting. He would fit really into modern day, some of the modern day Uh, trends that are out there right now he believed in performing exercises that were natural functional movements so here we have these terms again natural and functional he believed in doing self-massage of the skin and fascial lines he believed in being exposed to the sun he believed in bathing in cold water and he believed in running on the balls of his feet for aerobic activity So he was taking a more arguably holistic approach. He had some interesting ideas that as, you know, science has started to try and set out may or may not have been accurate. But one of the things that he was doing was he was engaging all of his senses. And this is the other thing you start to see. Multisensory integration is a really, great way to turn down noise, because the extraneous stuff falls away. You can't, when you're getting stimulated with many of your senses, you tune out what you don't need naturally. There was, over in Australia, he later moved to, I believe, England, was Frederick Matthias Alexander. If you are in the acting community at all, or the dance world, you may have heard of the Alexander technique, this is his. He developed a methodology to harmonize full body functional movements. And I did not take the time to define functional, I should have, because really what is functional and what is not functional? I'm us- I'm shrugging my shoulders because I don't know, I don't know, who knows? He used full chest breathing techniques with stage artists and people with breathing pathologies to help improve their breathing. Along the way, he discovered that retrieving the natural conscious control of movement via mindful postures and movements results That that resulted in benefits related to vocal health and performance and health and performance of the whole body and mind. So he was a big advocate of consciously controlling how you move. Because that would basically create more symbiosis or balance between your mind and your body. He advocated his technique as a general remedy and preventative tool for all populations. He was against dumbbells and bodybuilding. He felt like these were directly, direct adversaries to the natural and functional movement that he was teaching. But again, if you are going to move naturally and functionally, does that need to be taught? And if so, why? In London there was the St Thomas School of Physiotherapy and the school of the St Thomas School of Physiotherapy was really looking at women's health. They were looking at prenatal and postnatal health. There was a woman named Minnie Randall who was appointed to develop the program. She was inspired by Ling's philosophy of exercise. She used prenatal exercises to improve the physical and mental well-being of the patient. She used full-body movement exercises in lying, sitting, and standing positions. She stretched, she did deep breathing, and she did free arm movements to improve circulation. It's interesting when you start to look at some of the illustrations from this time. You start to see a lot of crossover between movements that you might recognize today if you're in the movement world. And a lot of these actually resemble some of the yoga movements. They're just taught very differently. The goal behind postnatal training was to improve the condition of the abdominal muscles so that the figure is restored to normal after confinement. So interestingly, prenatal was to... For general health and well-being, postnatal was back to this aesthetics idea. The final person I'm going to discuss is Margaret Morris. She developed a technique called the Margaret Morris Movement. She was in England. And she believed, she was a dance teacher, she believed natural dance moves should be healthy and constructive for the body and mind, rather than the deleterious moves dancers were performing at that time. I'm not quite sure what the deleterious moves were. But again, who deems something deleterious and who deems something natural? She saw connections between breathing, stamina, range of motion, posture, health, and vitality. One of the themes that starts to emerge with some of the mind-body disciplines is that there is a correct way to move. That there is a correct way to restore this natural function. This philosophy has continued up until present day. So there are so, a lot of ideas that movement needs to be a certain way in order for it to be right. Who decides these things? And where did those decisions come from? and Does that all really matter if you're looking at this from a mind-body perspective? As I said, I didn't cover all of the mind-body techniques. I'm going to do separate episodes on Pilates, yoga, Feldenkrais, and Qigong, because those all definitely, I think, influenced our common, again, where we are today with some of this. But As you finish this episode, just ask yourself the next time you're doing whatever your movement practice is. Are you moving the way you're moving because someone told you that was the right way to move? Or are you moving the way you're moving because it feels good to you? This isn't to say that all movement should be easy. Or that... Move, that hard movement is a bad thing it's not but even within that I took video of myself recently doing a sumo squat and the way I prefer to sumo squat is not the way a traditional powerlifting teacher or not a traditional strength and conditioning coach would advocate teaching the sumo squat So I tried it the way a strength and conditioning coach would advocate teaching the sumo squat. And it felt a little less free, a little less fluid. I'm not quite sure which one was better yet. I'm going to keep playing with both. Because that too is part of mindfulness, the ability to observe what you are doing and then to make a choice. The choice is the conscious decision. The ability to observe, to observe is the ability to find the space between the act of doing and the act of doing it again. Thank you so much for your time. If you have any comments or suggestions at all, feel free to drop them or, you know, put them in the little chat box and I will be sure to check those out. All right. Until next time, thank you.